Are you ready to know what you don't know about money? Then you're in the right place. This is Savvy Insights, a podcast on exploring prosperity, seizing opportunities, and preserving freedom, bringing you tips, tricks, tools, and extreme value. Broadcasting from our studio in Toronto, I'm your host, Baz. I want to personally welcome and thank you for joining us today. I'm really glad you're here because this podcast is designed for you. Before we dive in, remember you can reach me on Twitter at insights underscore savvy to discuss further about today's insights. Now let's begin. Today's topic will be looking at financial technology and how it brings us up to the present day. Human life today is nothing like what it used to be. Today, we listen to any song within seconds, send messages instantaneously across the world, and we fly from one country to another with a level of comfort and speed unmanageable to even the riches of royalty of the past. Medical advances have extended our life expectancy by decades. While the world's even getting smaller every thanks to these advances, people have more choice and control over their destinies than ever before. Technology has spread and leveled a playing field in nearly every aspect of our lives. But there's one industry that has stood stubbornly against change, looking to continue concentrating its power amongst the few. The financial industry is at a crossroads. No longer can it remain immune to progress. No longer can it take you for granted. That's why I'll share with you how you can wield fintech, aka financial technology, to power up your strategy for financial freedom. In this insight, we'll track the history of finance and banking from the days of medieval Southern Europe to the present. We'll explore and walk with you on how banks became behemoths that amassed and concentrated unprecedented amounts of power and political support to do their bidding. Today, they're so big, uncontrollable, and ubiquitous that they can bring the entire world economy to its knees like it nearly did in 2008. But there is good news too. I believe the financial industry today is undergoing the same kind of speedy, disruptive change that the transportation industry underwent over the lifetime of NASA's very own Apollo 14 astronaut, Edgar Mitchell. Edgar Mitchell, over his lifetime, just in the transportation technology sector, today, fintech technology, specifically peer-to-peer platforms and blockchain, will also transform an industry beyond recognition. The process has already started and it's picking up steam. It is very likely that in the next decade or so, we will be wondering how archaic, inconvenient, and dangerous the financial industry was until very recently. Our kids will probably daydream at how it was in the olden days, in the same way we wonder today how people managed to live without electricity. Just picture this. It's the 19th century, like around 800. A monk sits in his scriptorium in his room in silence, painstakingly pricking the margins of his parchment leaf with a compass. Using goose feather quill, he will soon slowly connect the points to draw a margin. The monk is one of the few people in this western world allowed to do something rare and amazing, and that's back in the day, 1800th century, make a book. For days, weeks, and even months, he copies text from an older book. Him or another scribe would illuminate it in gold. It was a painstaking manual process that takes months for one book. In the end, a priest or a powerful figure would be awarded this book to a chosen, wealthy, powerful recipient. For centuries, circulation has been tightly controlled this way. That is until Gutenberg. That is Johannes Gutenberg. He was a skilled metal worker and engraver. He sees a business opportunity and he perfects 
Praxis technique long in use in the East. By 1456, he's created hundreds of Bibles with movable type printing press. Gutenberg changed history. And I don't say that lightly. Although he died poor without realizing the immensity of his contribution to human history, this was one of the truly revolutionary technologies that came along once every few centuries fundamentally changing the course of human civilization. The invention of the wheel, the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution were all game-changing times. But it's Gutenberg's printing press that offers parallels to what we will soon explore further. For centuries, a select few in a highly centralized system were able to exercise tremendous power over the rest of the population. The elite decided what was produced and distributed. The elite influenced how books were read and interpreted. The elite chose who received what information. Gutenberg changed all that forever. In Europe, the number of books produced went from a few thousand handwritten copies per year to millions of printed books over only a few decades. All across Europe, very big universities got its printing press. The stranglehold on dissemination of information, a key component of power, was forever broken. People became freer. Now fast forward to present day. The digital age has further disseminated information at the lowest cost in history. But there's another centralized power-based industry invented even earlier than the printing press that is stubbornly trying to remain immune to this change. More than 500 years after Gutenberg's unleashed his printing press on the world, a new revolution, one that again will empower the masses against the elites, is occurring. This time, it's in the world of finances. And it is a new technology that is fueling the change. The concept of lending and credit have long been known to man since like ancient times. Some 4,000 years ago in ancient Babylonia, Egypt, Assyria, lenders made their first loans to farmers to buy grain and to trade other goods. Much later in ancient history, lenders also started accepting deposits and even converted the money to facilitate trade between different currencies, hence international trade. Back then, such actions were revolutionary an individual who no longer had to keep all his gold at home. The merchants in Athens knew he could exchange his silver in merchants of Cairo. Imagine the possibilities that these exchange systems alone opened up. The system kept evolving. Banking as we know it today emerged more than 600 years ago, when prominent families such as the Bardis, Peruzis, uh, later on there was the Medicis, they opened bancos. Bancos in locations such as Florence, Genoa, Venice... Uh, actually, let me go back to the word banco. Banco, or bank, translates as bench in Italian. For your next cocktail party, these financial transactions typically occurred on benches in marketplaces back then, and the name stuck. These early banks took gold and silver for secure storage, then charged a small fee for doing so, just like any other secured storage that we have today. The banks then typically issued something called a bank note. The person holding the note could have a claim against the gold back then, or silver. Eventually, these banknotes started changing hands in place of physical gold and silver, becoming the currency in circulation. Banks were also involved in lending, which fueled commerce. They loaned money to merchants who traded all over the world, and they charged a percentage as a reward for the risk taken. If banks made too many bad lending decisions, they went under. Back then, good lending decisions were imperative. Reputation was everything, and reputation wasn't the only thing on the line. The punishment for not being able to repay depositors' gold even included, in some cases, beheading. 
Today, in the aftermath of 2008's debacle, banks make arrogant decisions, risky decisions, with our money. And then, when they lose big, they receive little more than a slap on their wrist, followed by a taxpayer-funded rescue. Other than that, the banking system today generally is not that different from what the Italians uh, promoted. Big international banks have become giant conglomerates, so vast and complicated that no one can ever tell anymore what they have on their balance sheets. Most banks today hold hardly any of their customers' deposits in reserve, almost all of it being loaned out or invested in toxic derivative instruments. If a bank's activity proves to be too risky and they go under, again, not only is no one being beheaded or even shamed, but government taxpayers <laughs> bail them out. In exchange, the politicians who help them eventually retire in a cushy bank consulting position. As a taxpayer, not only are you on the hook for their arrogant stupidity, but with their negative interest rates now spilling over to retail customers, keeping money in a bank means you're not paying the bank for the privilege of them making those ridiculous loans with your money. The situation is so perverse. Banking is also so archaic and largely redundant. Hundreds of years ago, it might have made perfect sense for a bank to be involved in every possible financial transaction occurring between two individuals. We didn't have the security or the trust fully established. But in the age of the internet and advanced technology, a third-party nanny isn't necessary. Think about it. When you send a wire transfer of 5000 from one bank to another, that's simply a ledger modification on one of the bank's digital balance sheets. And it should be instantaneous, just like sending an email. No one is physically hauling a bag of money from one bank across the country or the continent to another bank and dropping it off. Still, this simple process takes 24 hours for domestic wires and costs a minimum of 25 bucks? Not only that, but as many discover every day, you'll likely get a call demanding an explanation of the transaction if you try to do it online. As if it is the bank's business that you're helping an elderly, computer illiterate relative unload an heirloom through an online sale. Then there's an international wire transfer, which takes three to five business days to clear and are much more expensive. Some banks in Europe even dare to charge a percentage of the amount being transferred. Since when did they have the right to do that, right? In all fairness, in some countries also, such as, say, Chile, domestic wires are instantaneous and free so that's there's some places with hope there's no need for a bank to be in the middle of every possible financial transaction today but banks do their best to resist this change plus the banks are in bed with the governments and they serve them more than they serve you sorry moreover all banks today are unpaid spies of the governments nothing wrong with that it's government body i suppose they're all registered with them but note this again, the phone calls. You might not just get one, but maybe two that any one of us may receive from their long-established, long-time bank. They would tell us that they would not complete your wire transaction without a detailed explanation of why the rather paltry amount was being transferred. We're talking about a couple thousand bucks within your country. Banks and other financial institutions submit more than 50,000 suspicious activity reports every single day. The financial system has become completely Orwellian. Just like law enforcement agencies, who by and large have sadly deviated from the original purpose of serving and protecting, banks simply no longer exist to be responsible custodians of their customers' money. Then they make horrible bets with your hard-earned savings and maintain precariously illiquid balance sheets. Then they use clever accounting tricks to mask their financial condition, destabilizing the world's financial system along the way. They're supported by undercapitalized deposit insurance funds, CDIC or FDIC, and by insolvent governments whose national debt is far exceeding their GDP. The banks are constantly being fined for exchange rate fixing and other market manipulation. 
They treat you like a criminal if you were to try to withdraw too much of your money at once, or they'll freeze you out of your own funds in a heartbeat if they wish to or if the government tells them to do so because of a cause. They routinely report you to government agencies. And your award for all this trouble in the land of the free and in the land of democracy is a whopping 0.01 interest rate. In Japan and Denmark, it's even a negative rate. Taken together, does it make sense to keep 100% of your life savings tied up in such an outdated and rigged system? I think not. Fortunately for us, technology is creating a better, cheaper, faster, stronger, and safer alternative. How has technology changed the industry in finance? Just as the printing press broke open the world of knowledge, today's technology is decentralizing the world of finance. Whether the powers be, I like it or not. I will say this, that the banking industry that we know today will not exist in 10 years. Most of the banks who will fail to adapt will have to close their doors going the way of blockbuster video rentals. Remember those? And the main drivers behind the changes are two recent and equally important developments, actually. Blockchain technology and peer-to-peer -peer platforms. First, let's go over some readily available alternatives you can use to increase your financial freedom and control today. Traditional alternatives for storing wealth. These are several ways to move your savings out of the banking system altogether. But before I get into that, let me repeat the three-part strategy I recommend for protecting yourself from financial shocks. Hold cash in lower denominations in a place that you have easy access to. Just in case you need cash and something goes awry, at least you have small denominations for day-to-day -day goods. So hold cash. Own physical gold and silver, not the stock, not some paper ETF. Those have a place, but actually own physical gold and silver if you can. Ideally coins, or if you can't find coins, small bars. Have at least a portion of your savings in a safe bank, in a stable jurisdiction, abroad, overseas. That allows you to have options. That way, if something happens where emergency war powers were enacted, where you are, you have a second location that gives you a diversified option to have at least a portion of your savings in that safe location. So those are the three things I wanted to make sure that you understood that you can take action today to help you protect yourself from any financial shocks. Hold cash in lower denominations, own physical gold and silver, and have at least a portion of your savings in a safe bank in a stable jurisdiction overseas. First two solutions in this strategy are also alternatives for storing your wealth outside of the banking system. The most straightforward move is to withdraw and keep physical cash in your possession, perhaps in a home safe. I recommend storing enough cash to cover a few months worth of expenses. In case of a financial shock and some other form of, say, capital controls, 10000 in your home safe may prove much more valuable than, say, half a million in a frozen bank account. The people of Cyprus learned this the hard way in 2013, and the truckers in Canada learned this the hard way in 2021. For more physical cash holdings, I recommend using lower denomination banknotes. Avoid hundreds, two hundreds for euros. In an ongoing and escalating war on cash, higher denomination banknotes will attract unneeded attention. Then, of course, there's the most traditional way of avoiding the banking system and fiat currency at the same time, storing gold and silver. I recommend that you keep a portion of where you can easily access it. But the majority of your precious metals should be stored overseas in a safe, stable jurisdiction where your government or overly zealous creditors won't be able to expropriate it easily. Here are some recommendations for secure storage facilities overseas, but please do your own research. DAS Safe, D-A-S Safe, is located in Vienna, Australia. There's also a New Zealand Vault located in both Auckland and Wellington, New Zealand. And uh, there's um, the Safe House in Singapore. All right. 
So that was traditional alternatives for storing some of your wealth. Let's look at alternatives for payment processing. If you ever tried opening a merchant account with a bank to process a credit card payment, you know how tedious this process can be and usually is. Until recently, your only choice was to follow the path and lose days and weeks of your life that you'll never get back. But now you can completely circumvent traditional banks for payment processing. For several years, PayPal has been the go-to platform in this area. It's processed over a trillion dollars for its clients in 2001. Unfortunately, however, PayPal has become to the payment processing industry what banks have become to the financial industry as a whole. PayPal now is too big and its customers' needs have become secondary priority. The market needed a better and more convenient solution and that's when Stripe stepped in. Stripe doesn't require setting up a merchant account. Your online store can process credit card sales right away. To set it up, you can choose a simple checkout system, just copy and paste it into your online store. And it even supports Bitcoin transactions. More, more on Bitcoin in a bit. Although PayPal isn't perfect, it was still one of the first companies to tackle the bank's monopoly over money and financial services. It was one of the pioneers of e-commerce, especially popularizing it through its links to eBay. And although PayPal is probably too big for large volumes of payment processing, it's great for transferring money within one country. The service is free and fast. It gets more expensive though with cross-border, cross-currency transactions. For the latter, consider using TransferWise, which has transferred more than a billion dollars in its short history. TransferWise's business model is ingeniously simple. They match up transfers going in one direction with those going in the opposite. Furthermore, the money you sent overseas never actually leaves the country. It's rerouted to someone who is being sent a similar amount by someone from overseas and your foreign recipient meanwhile receives their fund from someone sending money out of that country internally. Now, if there's a country with, say, rather strict currency control rules, Bitcoin has become one of the go-to options for the citizens of that nation uh, to get their money out of that country. Truly, such an option does not have any boundaries since Bitcoin exists only electronically and is accessible from anywhere with an internet connection. No government is controlling it, although they do dream about it. If gold and silver are on one end of the spectrum of assets that are outside of the banking system, cryptocurrencies are on the opposite side. The former is the oldest form of money there is. The latter is the newest. The most famous example of cryptocurrency is, of course, Bitcoin. I don't like using the term digital currency when describing Bitcoin because, in essence, all major well, paper fiat currencies are much more digital than physical these days. For example, fewer than 10% of all currencies in circulation today exist in physical cash. More than 90% of them are created and used only digitally. Euros, dollars, yen, all are a little more than just digital records on a cloud ledger of central banks around the world. That makes most currencies nearly as digital as Bitcoin. However, that's where the similarities basically end. Fiat currencies are highly centralized and heavily controlled by central banks and governments. Bitcoin is decentralized and isn't controlled by any one entity. Before we dive deep into this topic, let's talk more about technology in which Bitcoin is based on, the blockchain. The blockchain is essentially a giant ledger, keeping track of who owns what and how much Bitcoin, and tallying who has owned every single Bitcoin since the dawn of the first Bitcoin. As Bitcoin goes from one owner to another, the transfers are noted in a new block, authenticated and published about every 10 minutes. It's what people call mining. This is the part that confuses people because the coins are not on digital files but rather entries on the ledger this means that if you own a bitcoin what you have is an entry in a blockchain meaning everyone sees that line that you have it this line on a ledger let's talk about it in dollar terms for example hypothetically speaking all right 
Suppose every dollar created has a unique ID number and every individual has a unique ID number like a social security or social insurance number. You can think of blockchain as a giant accounting system that matches every unique dollar ID number with every social number of its owner. The system would show you the entire history of every unique dollar and how it has changed hands since being created as well as counting of every single person. The system would show you the entire history of every unique dollar and how it has changed hands since being created, as well as the account of every single person. That's more or less what blockchain is, but with some major caveats. One, for example, the blockchain is synonymous, so there are no social security or social insurance numbers, or even names to be involved really. All the entries are just strings on an alphanumeric code. Two, no one controls the Bitcoin blockchain. Unlike your bank, which can fiddle with its internal database, even if they make their own blockchain, their internal blockchain database, whenever it wants. It's not possible to adjust anyone's entry within the Bitcoin blockchain without a legitimate transaction. Three, Bitcoin's blockchain is public. Unlike your bank, which keeps everything private, Bitcoin's blockchain technology is fully transparent. Even the software is open source, which means that anyone can view the source code anytime. To get an idea of what it looks like, you can check out blockchain.info. Alright, so imagine this. There's a room that everyone has access to. Inside the room are piggy banks made out of indestructible clear plastic. So everyone can see what is inside every single piggy bank at all times. The piggy banks can't be removed from the room and everyone has a key to their own piggy bank. The room is equipped with security cameras that anyone in the world can view at any time and every second of footage is also viewable at any time by anyone forever. When I want to pay someone, I go into that room wearing a mask. Everyone can see I'm doing it, but they don't know who I am. I unlock my piggy bank, take out some cash, and then I put it in another person's piggy bank. Again, everyone can see me do it because it's caught on video. The Bitcoin blockchain can be used in many areas where it's crucial to correctly record a public transaction. Land and property title histories are a good example. In most countries, the process of registering the sale of a real estate transaction in the official public registry, like I say your local courthouse, takes days and costs a minimum of like say 50 bucks. In many parts of the world, proper title registries don't even exist at all. But with title registry based on blockchain technology, the title transfer can be done within seconds and would be virtually free. I want to say the Republic of Georgia, the government of the Republic of Georgia, announced a while back ago that they would be implementing such a registry. A similar project I heard about was underway in Honduras as well. Let me know down below in the comments they finalized it. Essentially, consistent success could potentially cause a domino effect around the world. As you can imagine, further application of blockchain technology is nearly limitless. Any asset or security, ranging from shares of Apple to songwriter royalties and NFTs, can be entitled in the blockchain going back to that room with the see-through piggy banks and i was wearing a mask and i took money from my place everyone saw me put it in another place that history of that footage represents all bitcoin's transactions of every market participant starting from the creation of the first bitcoin data block that first block included 50 bitcoins in traditional finance systems that room is locked away deep in the belly of a big bank and the only people who can access it and the security footage mind you are the people running the bank those chosen ones have total control over the room and can use that power to promote their agendas 
such as printing trillions of new currency units or freezing you out of your own account. In the case of Bitcoin, the room can be seen by millions of different market participants. Every participant has the same status about the room, so no one has a monopoly over the information and therefore cannot control or manipulate the footage. Such a decentralized system means that no one can tamper with the footage to gain any advantage or influence over any other market participant. Even if they try, there are other copies of that footage in circulation. Even if you modify your copy, it's impossible to modify anyone else's. Additionally, the number of Bitcoin units in existence is finite and predetermined by a computer algorithm created by the genius himself or herself or themselves, Satoshi Nakamoto. It is set to a maximum of 21 million Bitcoins, which will, will be reached around 2140, I think the consensus is around. Today, there are a little over 18 million Bitcoins in existence or 19 million, with a total market value of roughly $1 trillion, which is rather modest if you think about it compared to, say, what? the U.S. racks up uh, in a year, 2021. Euros and dollars. The representatives of these traditional monetary systems, on the other hand, have been creating trillions on a whim, thereby debasing the value to current holders. Gutenberg's printing press directly led to the liberation and publicization of knowledge and information, as well as a huge innovation in how society organizes itself, mind you. Today, we are witnessing the same thing happen with cryptocurrency, a digital, mind you, rather than a mechanical invention. Once government controlled and issued money becomes obsolete, the implications for our society will be enormous. Here's what an IMF report had to say about it. But excuse my accent. I'm just trying to pretend to be uh, an IMF uh, jockey. Virtual currencies in principle question the paradigm of state-supported fiat currencies and the dominant role that the central banks and conventional financial institutions have played in the operation of the financial system. And that's their report from one of their own. Imagine, they're quaking in their boots. Don't get me wrong, cryptocurrencies have their flaws and their problems as well. After all, they are still in the experimental stage. It is not unusual for Bitcoin, for example, to have wild price swings, when priced in fiat, that is. One Bitcoin makes still one Bitcoin. That discourages most people from using it as an everyday medium of exchange. However, this volatility should decline as Bitcoin market matures. Various technology flaws surface periodically and need to be addressed as well. Hackers pose a threat to Bitcoin users, especially to web-based Bitcoin wallets. Luckily, you can secure your Bitcoins by taking them completely offline. The biggest issue cryptocurrencies face, however, is increasing resistance from governments. Governments consider Bitcoin a major threat to the status quo, so they're trying to associate it with nefarious activities such as money laundering, drug dealing, black market, terrorist activities, freedom convoys. China, for example, has explicitly outlawed their use for trading Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Many other countries are considering the idea as well. However, these bans are very difficult to enforce, and there are many central banks now toying with the idea of setting up their own blockchain technology. The technology on which cryptocurrencies are based is getting better and better. Wild swings should become a thing of the past once adoption becomes more widespread and the correct price is discovered by the market. Widespread adoption is the direction things are going. In 2013, there were some famous experiments where people had to get by for a couple of weeks only using Bitcoin. It wasn't easy, but they did it. Bitcoin has already become a long way since then. The number of daily transactions in Bitcoins have grown exponentially over the last few years. So it's just a matter of time before Bitcoin or perhaps some other crazier technology in the future becomes widely accepted medium of exchange. So some will say, hey Baz, is Bitcoin really anonymous and secure? Mm, 
the short answer is yes. Bitcoin can be anonymous and secure as you want it to be, really. Gaining substantial anonymity and security will require effort, though, okay? Let me start with security first. Be wary of any online service providers. That's web wallets, all right? That's hot wallets. Security breaches are not rare, and they can take customers' Bitcoins with them. If you choose to use a desktop or a phone wallet, storing it literally on the operating system, make sure you back up your data from the start. A simple hard drive crash might make you significantly poor. Encrypting your wallets is always a good idea to start with as well. The best method for a security standpoint is to use what is called cold storage. It's a hardware device. This is not constantly connected to the internet. Treat your hardware device, your cold storage hardware device, like gold, literally, and store them in your home safe or somewhere absolutely safe. Then there's anonymity. On the one hand, the media loves to say that drug dealers and criminals use Bitcoin to exchange funds, but surprisingly, Bitcoin's anonymity level is far from perfect. In most cases, as you already know, the blockchain is completely transparent. Everyone can see the entire history of transaction of any particular Bitcoin address. On the other hand, the original system was designed to have no identifying connection between any particular Bitcoin address and the person owning it, therefore resulting in a pseudo-anonymity or pseudonymity. Technically, Bitcoin is synonymous rather than completely anonymous. And this is an important point to understand. But there is a caveat. Since a big part of the modern Bitcoin trading and storage happens through convenience, modern exchanges, plus online stores and wallet providers, anonymity is compromised since all of these sites typically require quite a comprehensive identity verification process known as KYC, Know Your Client Regulations. There are several ways to gain the level of pseudonymity that you desire, such as using a different address for each transaction or hiding your IP address using various technologies like virtual private networks or Tor networks. There are several ways to minimize your identity being exposed and to gain a level of pseudonymity that you desire, such as using different addresses for each transaction. While the use of Bitcoin may not be widely accepted yet, there's another alternative to gaining financial freedom and control that has been quickly adopted by the masses. That's peer-to-peer -peer networks. Aside from the blockchain and cryptocurrencies, the other major tech development affecting how we use money today is peer-to-peer -to -peer or P2P. P2P is eliminating the costly and redundant links of banks as intermediaries. It's inevitable. This elimination of the middleman, it's already happening in a large scale in other industries. Airbnb disrupted the hospitality industry. Uber and other similar taxi hailing apps did those for those who need a ride. Amazon and eBay revolutionized the shopping experience by helping remove the need for expensive physical retail stores. Music's another great example. I want to say in 1952, Michael Jackson released the best-selling album of all time. Thriller sold more than 6 million copies worldwide. Back then, if you wanted to listen to Billie Jean, you had to go to the store and buy a physical record. Today, you can download it from iTunes within seconds. Peer-to-peer -peer is leading the way for the same to happen in investment and loan space. Since the 2008-09 crisis, interest rates in most developed world, I believe, have largely gone to zero and even into negative territory in some places, earning less than 0.25% on your savings account. You're not alone, don't worry. Luckily, alternatives exist. Peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms and their offshore crowdfunding are probably the most popular ones and are living proof that alternative solutions work, and they work well. 
In 2020, the overall crowdfunding peer-to-peer lending volume reached over $100 billion. It's been growing at a rate for more than 100% per year. In just 10 years, the world has gone from almost $0 raised outside of the banking system to $100 billion in a year raised from the crowd. Asia, Africa, Latin America are just getting their first taste of peer-to-peer lending and crowdfund. So there's still huge growth potential. And these regions where traditional credit is typically hard to come by, especially for small to medium-scale entrepreneurs. Well, um, imagine a farmer in Paraguay who wants to buy a milk cow so that he can sell the milk and feed the family. Applying for a loan for his little project with a local bank would likely be onerous and ineffective. With peer-to-peer lending platforms and crowdfunding, though, he has a substantially higher chance of getting the money. He can now get $5,000 or $10,000 or even just $100 if that's what he wanted. All he needs is an internet access and a compelling story to convince investors to lend it to him. If you do decide to invest with a peer-to-peer platform, I encourage you to first learn about the limitations and potential tax implications. There may be limitations on how exactly you can lend your money with peer-to-peer platforms. For instance, uh, Lending Club explains on their website that for most, an annual gross income of at least 70 grand and a net worth exclusive of your home, home furniture, and automobile of at least 70 grand or a net worth of at least a quarter million, some exclusions apply, is necessary. The good news is that once you comply with with these regulations, there are no typically no limitations on how much or how little you can invest. Crowdfunding platforms, unlike peer-to-peer platforms, are mostly for entrepreneurs with a solid idea who are usually looking to start up funding. For those investors who wish to support an idea and business rather than an individual with a credit card or medical debt, crowdfunding is a great step towards eliminating overlording banks. Instead of raising money from big investors, entrepreneurs can raise it from the crowd and essentially like pre-sell their product, which gives the capital needed to start production right away. Kickstarter, GoFundMe, Indiegogo are three of the most well-known crowdfunding platforms. Money can be raised for anything from smartwatches to software to new cryptocurrencies. And when I say anything, I mean anything. Some crowdfunding platforms like GoFundMe often raise money for personal things like a 20-year-old's trip to Europe. You may recall GoFundMe recently making headlines in Canada because of the Freedom Convoy and its relations there. So be sure to check out some other crowdsourcing companies that haven't been smeared. Here are some other peer-to-peer and crowdfunding platforms that bring creative ways to connecting borrowers with lenders. If you already have a traditional business, such as a restaurant or a clinic, and need money to buy out, partner, or expand, you can use Fundera and choose from dozens of different lenders competing for your business. Circle Up takes it to the next level and connects accredited investors, those with big money, with high-growth consumer companies seeking funding. Unlike Kickstarter, investors in Circle Up receive equity in the company that they are investing in, becoming co-owners. The average amount raised is more than a million dollars. Fundrise is a real estate crowdfunding site in which the founders personally screen, vet, and buy every real estate deal they present on their website. After that, they resell it to their investor pool. Vouch offers an intriguing concept. If you have many friends who have faith in your credit worthiness and would officially vouch for you, why not put it to good use? It takes only one sponsor to get started with Vouch. But the more people who sponsor you, the higher the amount you can borrow and the lower the interest rate. Beware when vouching. The friends have to pay if the borrower doesn't. So don't vouch for someone you don't truly believe in. We are living an incredibly exciting time, guys. Many traditional industries that have been around for centuries are undergoing a complete positive transformation powered by modern technology and private enterprise. Airbnb changed the hospitality industry. Uber and Amazon have forever changed the way people move around and how they shop. 
Netflix, Hulu revolutionized the way people watch TV. iTunes and Spotify have done the same with the music and podcast industry. 3D printing is gaining momentum, becoming faster, cheaper, even more convenient by the day, and it's quickly becoming even a better alternative to traditional manufacturing. In a few years, I wouldn't be surprised if most goods will be made on demand, close to their end destination, and will not have to be transported thousands of miles abroad. Technology has changed our lives, and it's disrupted entire industries, making products and services more competitive and convenient and cheaper. The same will happen to the financial industry. It has barely changed for centuries and is due for a major overhaul. In just a few short years, we'll be likely keeping our savings in a gold-denominated digital currency in bitcoins or another advanced cryptocurrency. We'll be wiring money instantaneously using services like World Remit and other cheaper alternatives to avoid outrageous currency exchange fees and control from your local bank. We'll be taking out business loans and even home mortgages through peer-to-peer lending platform. It's not a fantasy. The majority of these services already exist today. It's just a matter of time before their use spreads as wide as that of Airbnb or Netflix. The likely major turning point is this financial crisis. One that has even gotten bigger than what we've experienced in 2008. People's funds have been frozen out of their accounts because of a cause they believed in. In democratic first world countries, other countries may not be able to get their money out because of capital controls. The value of their fiat money will continue to deteriorate because the governments will have created too much of it for any reason. This is exactly when the majority of people will realize the alternative solutions have become much better, safer, and cheaper options. And when traditional banks realize that they're losing the game and are going the way of the dinosaurs, they will have to start innovating again to stay in business. Many banks are already seeing the writing on the wall. They're getting on board with fintech revolutions themselves. And we see that with a lot of their CBDCs. Eventually, inevitable increases in competition will cause banks to stop being corrupt giants, trying to control and manipulate every aspect of our economy, all while bribing the politicians to push their agendas. As Thomas Jefferson once famously said, power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. If you enjoyed this insight, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new insight is shared. If you have any questions, feel free to reach me at Twitter, insights underscore savvy. If you haven't yet, I would immensely appreciate it if you took a moment to review and rate this podcast with either a four or five star review and share it with your friends if you so feel inclined. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you're leaving with some great insights that can help you in building yourself up to even greater heights. Until next time, carpe diem and stay savvy. Bye-bye.